of Space Design and Built Podcast, Episode 4 featuring James Hodgins, with your host, Simon Joss. Welcome everyone to another episode of Space Design and Build with me, your host, Simon Joss. And this week, my guest is James Hodgins. A very good morning to you, James. How are you? Hi, Simon. Very well, thanks. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Good to see you. Um, we keep in touch uh, relatively often and we've probably known each other for about four, maybe just under four years now. Um, good to have you on the show. Uh, welcome to episode three. Um, how is life in Abu Dhabi? It's pretty good. Um, obviously, there's uh, still some restrictions in place here, uh, probably more so in Abu Dhabi than in Dubai. But uh, we're very lucky uh, as residents here. We've been able to take advantage of the vaccine rollout that the government's kindly organised for everyone who wants to take it. So uh, I was one of the ones who got vaccinated about three months or so ago. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're lucky. Um, obviously, things are moving forward. We are entering a new norm. But um, yeah, with regards to uh, everyday life, we're very lucky to be within the UAE. Um, from a business perspective, last year was uh, super busy for JLL, uh, both within the, uh, the main markets that I work with in Abu Dhabi and Qatar, and also in Oman, which is uh, the third territory that I cover. Fantastic. So just give us, uh, continue that and give us a bit of a background on, on who you represent and what it is you do. What's your role? Sure. Um, I joined JLL in March 2017. Um, my main task was to look after occupiers on an office and business space perspective. Uh, I'm based in JLL's Abu Dhabi office. Uh, I think most people who are listening to the podcast today are well aware of JLL. Uh, we're a multinational company focusing on uh, commercial real estate assets. We've got uh, over 300 offices, over 50 countries in the world. Uh, and with that coverage, we are really able to look after clients' requirements across the globe. Uh, we have a lot of uh, professionals in the company, uh, just shy of 100,000. Uh, I'm in the office and business space team, uh, which some would term agency. Um, so we're looking after offices, uh, industrial logistics, which are the two segments of the market that I cover. We also have a retail team. Other divisions within JLL, we have obviously valuations, um, a big team based in Dubai, but also a presence within Saudi, within Abu Dhabi. Uh, we also do project management and cost management. I know yourself, you've worked with some of our guys and girls on projects in, uh, in Dover relatively recently. Uh, we have hotel advisory, strategic consultancy, and capital markets. Um, so across the board, if you have a commercial real estate asset, either in your portfolio at the moment, making uh, a look into acquiring something or to disposing of an asset, then JLL can help you. So I joined in March 2017, uh, focusing on office and business space. I uh, started looking after the Doha market uh, in around June 2017, and been looking after it ever since. Uh, I had the portfolio of uh, our Omani clients uh, added to my remit back in around uh, 2018. And as of the back end of course for last year, I've also taken a role uh, more holistically looking after industrial logistics across the GCC. So uh, we, we've got teams in uh, Morocco, in Egypt, in Saudi, as well as uh, based in the UAE. So again, if you have any clients who are looking for industrial logistics assets, then um, we can certainly help on, on that front. So acquiring space, disposing of space, fitting out space, looking at environmental standards in existing buildings or buildings that are looking to be acquired, and we can help. We um, first met, I'm pretty sure it was prior to the blockade. Um, we met face-to-face uh, -face in the Marriott Hotel, if you recall, um, some, some years ago. 
Um, how has the blockade, uh, albeit it has ended now, but how did the blockade affect your management style uh, of Qatar? It was always going to be a large percentage of time done remotely, as I'm sure Oman is, which we can we can do now. But how did the, how did the blockade affect your management of uh, Qatar clients? How did you adapt and pivot to that? Well, I was relatively lucky when the uh, embargo started in the, uh, I think it was the June, I'd been in uh, Qatar on the Sunday. So I'd flown in on the Saturday, uh, did some client tours on the Sunday, and I'd literally just flown back to Abu Dhabi on, I think, the last flight out before the blockade was announced. So uh, in, in a way, that had given me a month or so's head start and maybe some of our competitors, because I'd seen all the key people uh, in town on that visit, and I think uh, I'd actually met you on that visit as well for, for a coffee on the way out. Um, it was definitely challenging. Uh, what used to be, I think the longest it took me to fly directly from Abu Dhabi to Doha was 43 minutes. <laughs> um, that trip then became at least eight hours, if not slightly longer. Um, so it would uh, necessitate leaving Abu Dhabi International around eight or nine o'clock in the morning, um, sitting on the ground in, uh, in, in Muscat for uh, a few hours, and then taking the flight back up to, uh, to Doha from there. So you would typically leave Abu Dhabi around at eight and arrive about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Mm. Uh, Oman was obviously the uh, quickest way. I did the trip a few times by Q8, but that was always slightly longer. Obviously, it did bring challenges. Uh, in a way, the Qatari market's quite small. So I know most of the landlords there. Uh, I've toured pretty much all of the buildings. Um, I met the client local teams on the ground, so everyone adapted quite well, quite quickly. Obviously, there was an initial, I wouldn't say panic within the first few weeks, but people were quite shocked because not many people had seen it coming. Um, so from, from that perspective, there was an initial, you know, people stood back and they're like, this is going to go hopefully away in a few months' time, a few weeks' time. That didn't happen. But with regards to all the projects that we were working on, there was no delays. Um, everyone was happy to work remotely. And they were confident in the fact that I knew the buildings, knew the landlords, had the market intelligence to basically hold their hand through the transaction. I think from a, a sort of fit-out perspective, and this is where you probably know a little bit more about it than me, when the blockade started, uh, getting materials into Qatar was a bit of a, a difficulty. Um, from my understanding, a lot of uh, materials were coming into the JAF support in Dubai. Uh, a lot were being trucked up over the border. Um, at the time, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think... A lot of these goods were coming into the UAE as opposed to direct into Hamid port, uh, which is uh, one of the main ports in Qatar. So I was doing a, uh, a fit-out uh, project with one of the large oil and gas companies there. And I know they struggled to get office furniture and carpet within the initial weeks. Uh, and they were just finishing their projects off around the time that the blockade started in the June. But I think it, uh, it, it rapidly changed. Um, there were stories of the Qatar Airways flying in. Uh, livestock produce from uh, a lot of other countries that in the past maybe they might not have had such strong uh, trading links with. Um, some, some of the port renovation and um, sort of delivery works were, uh, were beefed up. So I think very quickly uh, the Qatari economy became more resilient than perhaps it had been in the past, uh, less reliant on products and services coming from uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And I would have said from my experience within about six to eight weeks, things began to normalize. Um, obviously based in Abu Dhabi, a lot of this is based on hearsay. And I know you're, you've been in Qatar, I think for 13 years now, so you probably speak more on the subject than myself. 
It, I think there was a delayed reaction. Um, what you said at the start of that uh, that statement that people assumed it would be a short term um, issue, and uh, they would have relevant um, uh, meetings within the GCC uh, committee meetings or, or summits, and it would it would be resolved. But no one was willing to to back down, and it became apparent that after the already um, uh, items that were already moving, such as materials, uh, imports, um, you know, FMCGs from Saudi and from the UAE, when that ran out, and of course when stocks ran out, not quite to the extent of taking all the toilet roll uh, from the shelves, but um, it, you know, the, 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 the poultry began to run out, the milk began to run out, uh, to run out, excuse me. Um, and yes, you're right, they had to, I guess, pivot and adapt very, very quickly. I think the funniest one I heard was that they were, I don't know how many cows it was, but they were flying in um, livestock from Australia. And I just had this picture in my head. I'm sure there's a film like the day after tomorrow or something like that, um, where they're flying cows and you've just got this cow, <laughs> this cow like just being helicoptered along. That was the image I had in my head at the time. So that was one of the kind of funny ones, but I, I've actually been up to the dairy farms. I've been up to Baladna and they did, they, they, they stood firm um, in a big way and uh, took it upon themselves to become as close to self-sufficient as possible. Um, it's a bit like COVID, you know, it, it expedited something that they should have done a long time ago and they were forced into the, into the issue. And it's, it's amazing how resilient countries and people um, can be based on something that's completely taken out of their control, which has happened twice to a country like Qatar. It's happened to everyone else in the world with COVID, but yeah, Qatar has been kind of um, kicked a little bit. And just as they were about to come out of the first knockdown, um, we then go into we then go into COVID. Uh, we, we can't avoid it. Uh, and we don't want to be referring to COVID for the next two years. We do want to be feeling as a, as a, uh, as a population, as a global population, that we have been able to control it there are vaccine rollouts, uh, the immunity is there, and it then becomes just another virus that has been um, controlled uh, to an extent. You're never going to avoid fatalities and, and illnesses and so on and so forth. And we're all looking forward to what I hope is eventually going to happen. Um, there, there is a, a large part of the social media that wants to hang on to these, these desperations and these dramatics, but hopefully that will subside like a lot of other things, like the embargo subsided, and it kind of it kind of went away very quickly within about three months, four months. Life just became normal. You couldn't travel to to Dubai within that or Abu Dhabi for that matter within that 40 minutes. I used to do the red eye. I used to be up at 4.30 in the morning. I was on a flight by 6.30, maybe even 6. I was in Dubai by 8, and I was back home at probably 11 p.m. and had a full sort of 14-hour day of, of meetings plus, plus travel. It was, it was doable. I didn't go to Dubai for, well, the entire embargo. The first time I went was in early February this year, even with, um, even with COVID. So yes, it, it has been an interesting uh, four years since uh, since we've known each other, um, but it's been it's been challenges that I think all parties have adapted to for whatever whatever reason. 
you mentioned that not only uh, commercial and office space, which is obviously my greatest um, passion and something that obviously from your background um, you've worked in for many years. Just take us back a little bit before 2017 when you when you joined JLL. What is your main background and what brought you out to the Middle East as, a, as an individual or as a family? Okay, um, so I left university back in 1999 having uh, studied for a business studies degree in Glasgow Caledonian University. Uh, my first real job uh, from university was uh, getting involved in a relatively small business that did uh, import and export uh, basically buying goods in the Far East. Uh, we had a, an office in a place called Hangzhou in China, uh, bringing the product into the UK, uh, a lot of gift and promotional items, and selling them to clients all over the world. So the largest client being National Geographic in, uh, in the US. It was a great business to get involved in uh, as a relatively young guy in his 20s. It uh, gave me the opportunity to travel the world. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy going to new places. I like seeing how different cultures work and in the very early days of my business career, it gave me the opportunity to see how business is done in different markets, uh, a lot of it in, in the Far East and Asia. Um, that business wasn't paying a, a tremendous salary at the time, so uh, I negotiated the uh, chance to take an equity stake in the business, and over time, I ended up taking 100% of the equity. I sold the trading arm of it to a competitor in the UK, and it had some real estate assets that I kept in a UK limited company. These were primarily warehousing units. Over time, uh, developed uh, some sites out, uh, built a bit of a portfolio up, but then came the empty rates relief in the UK, which was abolished, which meant that if you had an empty building, commercial building in the UK, and you were actively trying to find a tenant, the local authority wouldn't come and take a, a local tax from you. Unfortunately, that was abolished, so um, tenants then had a, a strong upper hand. They would come to me at renewal and say, look, James, we like the unit, we don't want to move, but we want to see the rent reduced and the big stick that we've got hanging over your head is that if we vacate this unit, you're going to have a void period and you're going to have to pay empty rates. So over time, uh, I formulated a plan, which was to sell them to uh, a gentleman who was in cash. I then took my cash down to um, southeast London and entered the, uh, the residential market down there, doing relatively small schemes, uh, small developments, four or five units at a time. Um, building them out, keeping them for a year or two, selling them off piece by piece, uh, unit by unit, and then going back to cash and rolling the dice again. I came out to the UAE in 2013, uh, fancying a change and also with a plan to uh, sell that uh, business and its assets off in a tax efficient environment. I set myself up in the Razal Kame Free Zone, which is uh, one of the free zones in the UAE. It was one that allowed you to have uh, overseas property assets in that structure. And I did project management and contract management for some real estate asset owners in the UK and some advisory work for some real estate owners in uh, Europe, mainly in Portugal. Uh, earning in pounds and spending in dirhams uh, worked fine in 2013 when I came out here, but then with the exchange rate changing, it became less of an attractive proposition. So I started to look around to find an opportunity to um, earn in dirhams. My background was always in relatively small businesses, um, maximum of 30 people at a time, sometimes just working solely as my own one-man band investor unit. So the appeal of working for a multinational large corporate was something I'd always wanted to do, albeit a lot of people do it the other way around. They work for a large corporate first and then go and take that skill set and set up on their own or with some friends or, or, or what have you. 
Um, I like the idea of doing it the other way around. Um, I knew some of the people at JLL from uh, networking, and that's one of my key strengths is I like going out into the market. And I heard of an opportunity coming whereby my predecessor was relocating back to Frankfurt, and there was an opportunity uh, to sit in the Abu Dhabi office of JLL, looking at the office and business space and also service in Qatar. So after a uh, relatively short negotiation process, I joined the company back in uh, March 2017. I started off as a manager, uh, which was uh, sort of uh, mid-role in the team. And then last year, I was promoted to associate. And at the back end of last year, had the industrial logistics portfolio added to my mandate as well. And the industrial and logistics, while it doesn't really sound as sexy as the background that I have behind me in the commercial aspect, how was that affected in the UAE with things like the embargo and with, with COVID? I'm sure that's brought its own challenges. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it's a new asset class to, to myself. It's one that having had a small portfolio in the UK, looking at it from a large occupier's perspective in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, um, it's a, it was a steep learning curve, but one that I relished getting involved in. Um, I would say that obviously with the COVID and pandemic and all the sort of uh, fallout from that, e-commerce and shoppers going online was a huge thing here in the UAE and I think globally. So all of the big providers, they were taking huge amounts of space. There was uh, a lot of the retail groups going more and more online. Um, a lot of the big firms have put out on LinkedIn over the last two or three months or so, new warehouses, more automation. And the whole automation side of things is something that um, JLL is taking very seriously. Uh, we don't want to be seen purely as uh, brokers of industrial logistics space, although that is part of the bread and butter of what we do. But we recently tied up um, an agreement with a German firm called Meback Consulting. And uh, this firm is really a supply chain consultancy. Uh, they're probably at the top of their game. So it was thought that the JLL and Meback tie-up would bring some amazing synergies between the two businesses that would bring real benefits to our clients. So JLL were looking after the industrial logistics real estate part of it, whereas Mubac are looking more after the whole analysis, the automation. JLL is basically sorting the box out for the clients and what goes into that box would be where the title with Mubac would come in. So we can offer clients a one-stop shop now uh, for any of their industrial logistics and more importantly, their supply chain solutions. I think, Going back to what you were mentioning uh, at the start of this, um, this segment of the, uh, the podcast, the supply chain was impacted, not just by the embargo of uh, 2017, but also with COVID. A lot of people realized that they had to hold more stocks. They had to go for a supply chain that had more than China plus one. They had to look at more local manufacturing. And touching on, on what you said earlier, a lot of these trends have been accelerated. These things were happening anyway. But the embargo and the pandemic have focused clients on that we need to do these things now. We need to bring them off the back burner. They're no longer a five, 10 year strategy plan. There are something we need to, to deal with in the next 12 months or so. And I would say a lot of our clients uh, adapted very well. They adapted very well to the new way of working. Um, I think um, a lot of them are in the process of coming out on the other side. Uh, we're seeing from the research that we've done as JLL in the UAE, a lot of the sort of uh, manufacturing, retail, um, automotive industries, a lot of their staff are back at work, 
not purely in industrial logistics assets, but also in their office space. Um, the professional service firms, the banks, the lawyers, the accountants, still a large proportion of those are working from home. But the, the whole concept of office and industrial space being dead, that's not the case. That's not what we're seeing. The places have to be reimagined um, from an office perspective. We need to create more of an ecosystem for people going forward because a lot of clients are saying to us that they're having staff, maybe 70% of the staff, working home between two and three days a week. So the two or three days that they're in the office, there really needs to be those collaboration spaces, no longer an office fit out being focusing on one individual being at a desk for eight hours a day. Someone might pop in for a few hours meetings and then uh, depart the office and return maybe in two or three days time. So again, that's been accelerated. And same with the industrial logistics space. In the past, it may have been a big box of eight to 9,000 square meters, which was racked out. Um, some of those boxes may have sat there for a relatively long period of time, but now it's much more automation, how we can really streamline the supply chain. Where are the pain points? Where are the, the touch points that they need to reach out to, especially such as JLL, to really sort of enhance and sort of bulletproof their business going forwards? The, just to touch quickly on um, what you were talking about, the, the logistics, um, let's call it a, a just-in-time method. Qatar has always struggled since the embargo, and I, I still think that they will struggle to an extent with the fact that uh, Jebel Ali and Dubai as a whole is the, the Middle East hub. There's, there's no getting away from that. Materials, um, you know, from a sea freight and an air freight perspective, if you look at the UPS, <clears throat> pardon me, the UPS couriers for air freight and, and small volume and weighted items, they all run through a hub of um, Dubai. That changed the Frankfurt um, when the embargo happened. The problem that Qatar, I think, will find more so than the UAE because of that hub factor is that they still require that warehouse space. They still require the, the vastness and the size to bring in the stock in one, let's, ship, let's say one shipment or, or one bulk shipment, rather than a just-in-time model that will reduce the warehouse space down by whatever percentage that might be, 60%, 70%, hold a smaller volume of stock and then move that just-in-time model, particularly from an air freight perspective, because it's just not cost viable. I've done the relevant research on office furniture, on ergonomic products, and it's barely viable for ergonomic products to bring them in on a just-in-time basis, which can only come from air freight. If you're looking at things like monitor arms and seating and um, uh, general um, cable management products, et cetera, they're all light-weighted. That's gonna be the biggest thing from a Qatar perspective, but I can see how that would be relevant in, um, in the UAE. Part of your point there um, with regards to the office, again, it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. Yes, there are people that will potentially, I think few and far between, will increase the size of the office because of social distancing. I think social distancing was, to an extent, a phase. Uh, I think there are other more viable protocols to put in place to minimize those numbers, which would be remote working, working from home, flexible working, which can be from a number of different um, establishments throughout the globe, as well as the Middle East, 
the WeWorks um, of the world. We've got Workington and Qatar. You've obviously got the Regis and the Surf Corps that no doubt will adapt uh, to allow that flexible working to happen uh, as well. Uh, if they haven't, it won't be long before they do. And that then allows at the right time, the multinationals or the SMEs, because SMEs are still up to 250 persons, employees, to then negotiate that space, to bring that down by a considerable percentage, which of course has uh, a monetary advantage uh, to the organization. So I, I personally don't see organizations being too concerned about the increase in the space. Why would they? They, they need to be looking at cost efficiency and value engineering. However, my question to you would be, uh, do you feel, and I've asked a, a couple of very close contacts and, and real estate organizations, but they are working both on residential and commercial. If, if they ask the question to the client, when, when the inquiry comes in, hi, I'm looking for a thousand square meters. You know, what, what would you as, as JLL say to that client? If they're looking for a thousand square meters, how do they know? Surely people have got to be more inquisitive and precise about the space that they require. Because if you're looking to save uh, overhead, if you're looking to become more cost efficient as a global or SME business in an expensive region, which the Middle East is, uh, surely anything between 100 to 200 square meters of a saving over five years is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is that becoming more important for tenants? Is that what you're finding when you're speaking to your clients? Well, some recent research that we've done as, uh, as JLL, which we'll be publishing some, uh, sometime in the, uh, in the near future, uh, probably after Ramadan, uh, we found out from the large multinationals that we've reached out to across the GCC, very few of them are significantly going to reduce their portfolio within the next three to five years in this region. Obviously, some firms are. Um, I was working with one recently who's, uh, they, they have uh, premises in Dubai, and they have premises in Abu Dhabi, and they've decided to close the premises in Abu Dhabi and just have a service office for licensing perspectives. Um, in Qatar, um, that's probably quite the opposite. Uh, a lot of our clients, especially since the start of this year, are looking at actually taking more space and that's because I think a lot of the, uh, the, the clients, especially the, the multinationals, they see how important the office is to their corporate culture, to mentoring and onboarding new members of staff, to collaboration. The environment's definitely changing. So if a client had a, a requirement for a thousand square meters, some of the large MNCs have their own real estate teams in-house who will have already done the space planning. If not, that's something that my colleagues in uh, who sit in the Dubai office uh, can do. We, we do the whole uh, ergonomics, space planning, uh, office layout, as well as sort of fit out. I know you, you work with our team and do a lot of these services in Qatar yourself as well. Um, but the requirement now where one person may need 10 square meters, they may need 10 square meters or may have traditionally needed 10 square meters for visa purposes. But I think a lot of these things we're starting to see are starting to change. The authorities across the, the GCC in the past, they wanted people to have dedicated space. They're now getting more and more relaxed with regards to, yes, you can take some serviced office space. Yes, we understand that some of your members of staff are, are going to be on a client site. They're never going to be in the office. And now they are starting to realise that more and more members of staff are going to be doing some, some work from home. 
Uh, approximately 70% of those JLL survey were saying that they expected staff to be in the office maybe only two or three days a week with the rest working from home. So I think the um, as much as the, as the governments and uh, the large ruling sort of families in this part of the world who have large portfolios and a large plays in the real estate sphere, they want people to take space. I think clients also want to take space. Um, they, they've gone through the initial shock of the office has been empty because everyone was working from home. Um, with the likes of JLL, they've reimagined the space as the restrictions have been lifted. Um, here in Abu Dhabi at the moment, um, governments and semi-government uh, have been asked to work from home. They've been mandated to a maximum of 30% capacity in the office. But in Dubai, for example, it's pretty much open business as usual. And from the conversations I'm, I'm having with clients, they want to go back into the space. Employees, yes, they've liked the flexibility. They've liked the fact that they can pick the kids up from school. They've liked the fact that there's not the commute time that's been wasted in the car. But they miss the face-to-face -face interaction. They miss bumping into a colleague in, in, the, in the coffee room. So when you have the initial conversation with the clients as to, we want a thousand square meters, one of the first things I, I ask is, you know, how have you arrived at this, this quantum of space? Yeah. Um, have you looked at the usage of the space going forwards? Or are you just saying, we are in building X at the moment, and if we go to 80% of this space at the current rent, we're going to make a saving, and anything more than the saving from handing that quantum of space back is going to make us shine in front of our, our peers when we put the PL in. Um, and a, a lot of them, they get more and more inquisitive. They want the environment where the health and safety of the employees is coming in, where it's more environmentally friendly, where it's more sustainable, because these are all topics that were floating around the commercial real estate space for a number of years. But now they're looking at the office space, all of these things are coming in at one time. So it's a perfect opportunity. And this goes back to a comment I made earlier in the podcast. We had a super year as JLL in Abu Dhabi last year. Um, really engaging with clients, hand-holding them through the, the unknown. And it was an unknown for JLL as well. But with our market expertise, with our knowledge, with a wide range of professionals within the organization, whatever um, situation a client found themselves in, we were able to assist. So going forwards, I, I see the likes of the, the JLLs of this world really being able to add significant value to people who need to take commercial real estate. Um, one thing I've noticed, though, is the Qatari market has really picked up. We've got a lot of clients at the moment who are looking to expand their office space. Uh, they may be in serviced office space at the moment. These people might have um, five, six desks. They're now looking at taking a lease of three or four years, for maybe 150, 200 square meters of space. We've got um, clients who in the past were doing the fly-in, fly-out from Dubai. They were taking a small office for licensing um, in Qatar. Obviously, with the embargo, people weren't able to fly. They still took a, an office for licensing. But now that things are starting to open, they're seeing real opportunity. And obviously, with the FIFA World Cup coming, anyone who's vaguely related in, in those uh, type of activities, all of the contracts are starting to be fulfilled there now. So when I'm reaching out to landlords in Qatar for my clients who have got industrial logistics requirements, the large operators are saying to me, look, you, you need to get your clients to, to act quite quickly. And this isn't a sales tactic to get them to sign the lease sooner than where maybe they'd be feel comfortable in doing so. But a lot of contracts are being fulfilled now and the supply is the supply. Yes, some new units are going up, 
but if you're going to have a requirement in the next six months or so, really you need to be sort of viewing the space sooner rather than later, committing and, and moving forward. So I'm seeing a lot of activity in the Qatari market. Uh, a lot of our clients are focused on the loose sale area at the moment, especially for the, for the office space. Um, obviously, uh, you, you know the, the area very well. This is sort of 20 kilometers away from the sort of West Bay area, which has traditionally been the commercial hub of Qatar. But a lot of people are now starting to say, yes, we're seeing buildings completing. Some of the, the prominent office towers there have got very high occupancy rates already. But a lot of the towers that are coming up, landlords have been very commercially savvy, offering very attractive terms to, to get clients in there. So, yeah, it's, I think, uh, I think this year, for the next, for the end of this year, 2021, and going into 2022, I think the office space uh, market is, uh, is going to be very competitive. Yeah, and I, I find that exactly the same. And we've spoken about that over the past um, couple of weeks uh, on, on topics that we've been, you know, we've been discussing. Um, you touched on the World Cup there and, and the conversations that I've been having with some organizations within the, the entities that I represent and, and the art group that, um, that acquired us a few years ago. We're working on a number of elements where people are looking for um, space, but they're also looking at setting up um, they're only looking at potentially coming into the country and setting up that entity because not because they're being forced to, but because of the contracts and because of what's coming um, for the World Cup. There is a number of events um, that are coming. There's a number of, sort of back end contracts um, hospitality based fan zones, overlays and various things like this. And they're only just coming into the country now. You have been in the, uh, in the Middle East since 2013, I think you said. I've been since 2008. We all know how quickly these years have rolled by. I, I was in Dubai in 2010 when it was announced. I was uh, uh, visiting my, uh, an old managing director of mine. Um, and I was jumping around, you know, 2010, December, jumping around uh, the Palm, uh, a, a restaurant on the Palm, and he just looked at me, what, what on earth is wrong with you? It was all muted. It was set blatter in the corner. But I just said, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the reason I came out to Qatar. 11 years later, it's been an embargo. It's been COVID. It's been you know, logistical nightmares. It's been shortages. It's been disputes and so on and so on. And, so on. and now all of a sudden, there are 18 months. That's it. Not 11 yeah. years, 18 months. And it's not even 18 months, James, it's six. Because if you haven't set up, if you haven't sorted out your space, if you haven't planned for 2022 by now, you need to do it within the next two or three months. And not only that, you've got Ramadan in a couple of days. So we all know Absolutely. from our perspective, the place kind of goes on go slow. It's not, it's not the same as the UAE. It does go on go slow if you allow it to. I'm, I'm not a go slow person, as you know. I'm that this is a normal month for me. It might be a bit quieter office-wise, and we are kind of in a semi-lockdown again, but it's going to be a, a busy few months. September, we get that summer. As we all know, that's a bit of a, a sort of go slow as well. Families back in the UK, if that is permissible. If, if we're able to travel. But generally, families back in the UK are back in their home countries of Europe or Australia or America or whatever, and they come back to the Middle East in September, and you've got one year. You've got one year to get ready for the World Cup. And they're doing test events in December and January. You know, these are literally eight or nine months away. We're already in April. 
you know, by the time it comes to the end of Ramadan, we're going to be in the middle of, you know, after Eid, we're going to be in the middle of May. And of course, everyone's mindset goes, oh, well, it's, it's the summer now, June, July and August, and then bang, you're into September. So this, this time that's, that we're facing is actually probably the most excited I've felt in a long time. And, and it's going to be worth it. It has to be worth it. Um, I'm really looking forward to what uh, Qatar is going to bring, uh, what opportunities there are. Um, aside from uh, from the World Cup, you've just said that you're finding that multinationals that may not have um, uh, anything sort of invested in, in the World Cup or in sporting events could be oil and gas, could be finance, could be technology. Qatar is still very strong in a number of sectors. So there are a number of, of our clients that are looking to um, looking to evolve. And um, 2021 is going to be an interesting year. 2020 years of uh, 2022 is going to be um, uh, amazing. Um, do you think that what you've been talking about regarding those offices, regarding the two to three days a week, is that is that the norm? Or is there any way back for, for nine to five, five days a week? I think I know the answer, but I'm interested in your opinion. Uh, from what I'm seeing and from the clients I'm speaking with, the flexibility that's coming in from allowing people those few days to work from home uh, is something I think is going to be difficult for employers to take away from employees. Obviously, attracting the right talent, uh, it takes into, uh, into account all sorts of factors. Um, the office space being primal from, from what I'm seeing, but also that flexibility. If you can pick the kids up from school, if you can miss the commute, if you can do some household chores while wearing a headset, listening to a call that maybe you don't have to contribute too much to. It, we, we all laugh. You're laughing. I'm sat here with a smile on my face. But we can all relate to that. Yeah. I think that flexibility and the employers who have allowed their employees, when the restrictions were lifted in Abu Dhabi, for example, and you could increase to 60% capacity, JLL didn't force you back to the office. People wanted to come back, so we easily filled up that capacity. It's the same with the Dubai office. It's the same with some of my clients in Qatar. Obviously, things tightened up there um, relatively recently, so people are back to working from home a bit. But people have people have enjoyed it. They haven't. In, they've come together with regards to the pandemic because it was something that brought a lot of people together, like a lot of crises do. Um, there's a lot of opportunities in crisis as well. And I think in a lot of the clients that we're working with and the company that I'm fortunate to be with with JLL, they really made the, the best of it with their employees. I think some of the, the managers origin, originally, not so much in JLL, but some of the, the clients that I work with were a bit concerned about how homeworking would impact productivity. And I think in a lot of roles, it has a slight impact. But I think that's more than compensated for by the happy employees, the productive employees, yeah. and the, the commitment they're giving. So I would say that hybrid models going forward for I would say at least 70%, if not slightly more, percentage of employees is something that's going to be the new norm going forwards. Um, I can't see any real way back. I think the hybrid model um, has actually encouraged employees, us in essence, to plan their day more effectively. It, it's, it's enhanced our productivity because we've had to be more organised. If you are trying to balance a day uh, where you have family, uh, where both parents are working, um, there is the school run, both to and from, um, you're balancing meetings, Zoom calls, site visits, 
you've literally, you know, some people go to the office nine to five, eight till six, go home, and that's their thought process. And their diary does the rest for them. And they are in an office and they're going to meetings or they're going out and about. Now, because you're having to work as a team, as a, as a family, I think we're having to be a bit more organized. So again, I think it's been positive. Again, just trying to take the positives out of what is a, a, a disastrous situation that a lot of people have been in for the past you know, 12, 15 months. You've got to look at the positives of what it's done to people as individuals. It's made them... I think it's made them more proactive. Um, and let's let's look at that as a good thing. Um, it's encouraged more uh, online meetings. So it's made time more efficient. Uh, if you want to look at carbon efficiencies on, on flights that are less flights. Um, I spoke with someone 12 months ago on my other podcast, this is Qatar. And um, someone that's looking after the Middle East or North Africa region that would fly uh, several times a month doesn't need to anymore. They didn't need to in the first place. But they just chose to. It was this luxury of I'm going to jump on another flight and I'm going to gain some more air miles, but I'm going to Nigeria or I'm going to Egypt or I'm going to Bahrain or I'm going to the UAE. Now you do not need to do that as often. I'm sure there still needs to be that face to face. So let's look at the positives of what it's taken out. And of course, that efficiency on the office space, um, that, that hybrid model that allows people to adapt and encourages them to work in their to their strengths some people work i work strongly in the evening i don't necessarily work strongly between the hours of say two o'clock and four o'clock because it's just getting that sort of hump of the day i'd rather go and spend some time with the family family are, are, are sorted and then I'm, and I'm, I'm back and motivated at sort of eight nine o'clock at night till one in the morning I, I just don't think that the norm of let's say the zennials or the generation x is a nine to five will ever exist ever again you know, millennials have come in, social media has come in, uh, remote management or remote working has come in, flexibility has come in, everything is now technology-based, including project management. You look at um, site visits. Uh, we had, we had a, a project that we worked on in the last 18 months, and we worked on the swing space. We worked on it remotely together. We then worked on the fit-out, and everyone within JLL was in the UAE. And we were able to use technology through the design stakeholders, the project management stakeholders, and of course the client stakeholders by actually being able to give them a visual representation of what was happening on site. And no one jumped on a plane because they couldn't. So they were forced into a situation to pivot and it was successful. The project looks great. We've already had some fantastic feedback. People have visited the office. Everyone comes out of it in a positive scenario out of probably the worst situation that we're ever going to experience. So let's move on. I think, I think like you say, technology uh, is helped in lots of ways. Obviously, the remote working, employee wellness uh, here at JLL on some of the landlord instructions that we have in Abu Dhabi, where it's easier for me to actually get to. Literally, for tenants who are interested in space, who can't physically view, because uh, even if they're based in Dubai with a hard border in place at the moment and the requirements of PCR and DPI testing to cross, People have been saying to me, how can we view the space? Well, with technology, even if it's a simple thing such as walking around, making a video on your iPhone, you can give a client a, a good feel for the space. And very quickly, they can say, it's going to stay on the, on the shortlist or let's discount it and let's focus on building X or building Y. So I think, uh, I think technology, it was always there, but it's again come to the forefront as a result of the need to do something. And yeah, it's... 
it's been, uh, it's been, I mean, jail on technology, a, a sort of hand in glove. We see ourselves as very much a technology driven and data driven company. So going forwards, I think the solutions that JLL is going to be able to bring to occupiers and asset owners is only ever going to increase. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. James, I'm going to call it there because I think that's been um, very informative on both sides. Um, I do thank you for uh, for your time and uh, thanks to all of our listeners. Um, were you nervous? I was to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get into the swing of things, it's great. And I really love doing these shows and uh, and, and I really um, appreciate all of our, our viewers and listeners and, and hearing us talk about um, what's uh, something that's very passionate um, to, to both of us and, and all of my guests. James, thanks so much for your time. Um, uh, thanks to all of our listeners and viewers. Uh, this has been the world of Space Design and Build with me, your host, Simon Joss, and we shall see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.